Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today, we have a remarkable guest, Pascal Leon, who has dedicated her career to serving vulnerable populations in New York City. As the executive director of the Supportive Housing Network of New York, Pascal leads the only supportive housing nonprofit membership organization representing over 200 nonprofits that develop and operate supportive housing. Before joining the network, Pascal was the VP of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging at the Corporation for Supportive Housing, where she was responsible for crafting and advancing the agency's vision to advance a comprehensive racial equity framework. Her work is a testament to her dedication to social justice and creating a world where everyone has access to basic necessities like housing and support. Pascal's leadership and commitment to advocating for those who are often overlooked make her a true inspiration. So without further ado, let's welcome Pascal Leone to the show. Hello, Pascal. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm well. Uh, thank you for having me. How are you? Thank you for taking the time to come on. I am doing well. Um, so just to start, could you just tell us a little bit about your cult- cultural upbringing and kind of how you ended up in the career you're in now? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to first say that I I love this question. Um, and I, I love this question because I'm big on culture and <clears throat> celebrating identity. And, and um, as I believe that really shapes kind of our, our worldviews and, you know, how we make decisions every day. And so Culturally, I identify as Caribbean American and specifically and proudly as a Haitian American. And so um, although I was born in New York to Haitian immigrants um, as a first generation person, you know, my first language growing up was Haitian Creole. Um, My Creole is a little suspect now, but, uh, you know, I I still, you know, understand things. But um, I also grew up in a very Catholic kind of Christian household. Uh, Again, I think I would consider myself a recovering uh, Catholic at this moment, but I think all those things combined really informed how I pursued my career, really advancing social justice issues and causes. And also to add that, you know, from this and in my experiences that, you know, I always take the moniker that the personal is always political, right? And so my work in advancing, whether it's reproductive justice, economic and housing justice, has always been informed by, by my lived experience and understanding, um, but also been about, you know, how we all get free um, and the notion of collective liberation. That's great. So we're talking about homelessness today through the lens of what you're doing. But when was the first time you became aware of homelessness yourself? I can't say I remember when I first became aware of homelessness. It's just been something that I, I always knew existed, um, but also equally at a young age, understanding that it shouldn't, right? Um, you know, recently I was in a, a space with some of the foremothers, I would say, of the supportive housing movement, 
Uh, and they mentioned that, you know, there was a time where homelessness wasn't just a visible thing, right? And so I'm sure it existed, but it was really something that, you know, wasn't as apparent and invisible as it is today and really kind of took shape and somehow became this socially acceptable norm in the late 70s, early 80s, and also around the same time that supportive housing uh, came came to be. But, you know, I'd say personally, as a child, I remember, I, so I grew up uh, in Long Island outside of Queens. I remember my sister and my cousins and I would make, we made a bunch of lunches, peanut butter jelly sandwiches and and oranges and fruits and, and, and waters, and then went down to the city and were handing it out to people we saw sleeping on uh, the subway and on park benches, right? And it was just something that we just felt like, you know, this shouldn't be, right? And what is our, our part? Um, but also it was interesting. Last year, I sat on this board for the Health and Housing Consortium and the executive director asked me um, as one of the board directors, just if we had a personal experience of, you know, being homeless or being precariously housed. And I never thought of myself in that experience. I've had family members who've been in shelter, who've been in supportive housing. But then I, I re- it dawned on me that I have been, um, ex- I have experienced, you know, being uh, precariously housed, you know, at the age of, of seven, uh, my mother, I, I grew up in a single mother household, a working class household, our house burned down. Um, and it was a really traumatic thing. Um, but I just, you know, my sister, my mother, I'm sorry, my sister, myself, my grandmother just ran out the house literally with the clothes on our back uh, due to your wiring um, situation, electrical wiring issue. But it was, it, we were making that decision when my mom came home that we were going to enter into the Red Cross shelter. It was also at that moment that our neighbors who just moved in, I think the third or second black family on the block, didn't know us, didn't know our names, but they took us in. They took my sister, myself, and me in, um, and we stayed there for about six to seven months. Um, and you know, they are family to this day. But um, again, it was just that relatable experience of what it, you know, just having to leave our home and on the kindness of strangers, literally, that have become family. You know, we we stayed with for for a bit. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that so exposes the reality of the precariousness that we all kind of are in when it comes to housing, right? Like if, if your story went a little bit different and they, they weren't willing to be, you know, kind and, and allow you to stay there, who knows, you know, um, what direction that could have gone. So, um, yeah, it's just a sobering reminder how, how really close we all uh, can be um, to that. So could you uh, speak a little bit to what supportive housing is? Like, what does that what does that mean? Gladly. <laughs> and so, you know, supportive housing is an effective and evidence-based intervention that is proven to, to end homelessness. And specifically, supportive housing pairs deeply subsidized affordable housing where an individual family pays no more than 30% of their income towards rent and utilities. Uh, and that's tied with on-site, wraparound, community-based, voluntary services, services like case management, peer supports, uh, mental health counseling, connections to education, workforce development, reunification of families, right? Uh, and it's for folks who face the most barriers and who are low income, formerly homeless, have a disabling condition, whether it be mental illness, substance use disorder, individuals who have cycled through institutional settings like jails or prisons or involvement in systems like the foster care system, right? And so we have decades of research that shows that supportive housing really does strengthen communities um, and really helps to integrate um, people with disabilities 
in their communities and do more than just survive, but also to, to thrive. It's so interesting that um, you mentioned supportive housing. Uh, one of its goals is to end homelessness, um, which is a huge and amazing statement. Um, and so we're all, that is all of our passions here, right? So, uh, you know, you said that there's um, that uh, what is meant to do. So what specific um, impacts have you seen of its effectiveness? Yeah, you know, I think both the stories, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I've been in the supportive housing field for about a decade. And the most, you know, we have data, we have evidence, we have all the research and the different levers of, of rigor. What it comes down to is when I hear from individuals um, who not only invite me into their inside their homes, but into their personal lives, right? And and share their compelling stories of just how supportive housing saved their lives, right? I've heard so many, I, I can't even just think about one, but just amazing stories of how folks um, in their recovery journeys were able to achieve so, so much, you know, reunify with families, um, pursue, you know, educational, other kind of workforce uh, goals, um, it's really just been so impactful. And studies, again, as, as I mentioned, really have shown the efficacy of, of supportive housing. We, we, we know that it reduces shelter stays, uh, days in jails and prisons. Uh, it reduces, you know, the use of costly crisis setting, uh, settings like, you know, hospitals or emergency departments. Um, you know, one specific study that we could, you know, there's so many, <laughs> uh, but uh, back, you know, supportive housing started in New York City. Um, and there was a study that was released in, I believe, 2008 that focused on frequent users of systems, systems engagement, also known as FUSE. It's an initiative um, that really looks at folks who um, are cycling in, uh, across different systems, right, um, and not maintaining housing stability. And it looked at this cohort of individuals who would be perfect for supportive housing, 200 individuals in New York City who are, you know, involved in the shelter system, jails, and hospitals, right? And even after one year and two years, after just one year, they thought that for that target population, 90% of them remained housed, right? We also saw significant reductions in shelter stays um, as compared to comparison group, right? As well as reductions in, in jail and inpatient settings. And so there's scores of a additional research that underscore the same thing. But again, the most impactful thing is just hearing from folks who live in supportive housing, who are able to achieve such great things um, and who go on to advocate um, for the need for more supportive housing and serve as peers in their communities, joining different community boards um, and really being integral pieces of their, their communities and their families. At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people. This podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Buttafuoco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM or 1-800-669-4878. Yeah, I think it's beautiful how the 
it's not just how supportive housing is is benefiting and affecting those who have experienced, you know, homelessness and are going through supportive housing, but how that has this ripple effect into the community. Even are you saying how it, Absolutely. you know, births advocates for it. That's, um, that's an amazing thing. Uh, so speaking of advocacy, uh, supportive housing network represents, uh, 200 or over 200 over nonprofits. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, how does the network advocate for its member organizations? The network was established in 1988, uh, and we are the state's only supportive housing membership organization. And so, as you mentioned, we advocate with and on behalf of our 200-plus nonprofit developers and and operators of supportive housing who operate the best and most quality uh, supportive housing in the nation, if not the world, right? Uh, But thanks in part to our advocacy, uh, the state is now home to over 55,000 units of supportive housing. Um, and so while we recognize that this is quite significant, we also recognize that the need, you know, far outweighs the, the current supply. So we know that you have extensive experience in the DEI space. Your last position, you were the vice president of diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Can you unpack for our audience? Big question. The link between structural racism and homelessness. How much time do we have? <laughs> exactly. An entire podcast. An entire, this would be that. a series. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, a great question. And I think only, I think in the last, I think, you know, a few years, you know, I would say even before the the latent uprisings of 2020 for economic and racial and social justice, that this has really kind of taken shape. And more increased attention, but I think most importantly, more increased resources to really dedicate it and understanding that we can't really end homelessness without really addressing uh, um, the structural causes of homelessness. And that is, you know, the lack of accessible, affordable and quality housing, economic immobility and systemic racism. And so, you know, any meaningful attempts to end homelessness has to affirmatively, uh, you know, redress not only just the historical, but also the contemporary harms of structural racism. You know, structural racism is a leading factor driving homelessness rates. You know, it's why we see the over-representation of indigenous uh, people, Black, Latinx, in the homeless system, um, but also in other systems that feed into homelessness, as I mentioned before, like jails and uh, foster care system, prisons, and so on. And because the disparities and the over-representation of Black and Brown and Indigenous folks is not unique to just, you know, one system. It's not just the homeless system. It's across the different systems. Again, those that that feed into it, it really underscores that racism, right, is is systemic, and we need a whole system and a whole government approach to ending it. You know, I think previously we've had this really siloed approach to systems change without really centering equity and justice. And by justice, I mean, you know, the redistribution of, of power and resources in communities. Um, and that, that can't be the norm, right? And instead, we really need to normalize integration. We need to normalize um, incentivizing for equity, and we need to normalize anti-racist practices. And what I mean by that is, you know, that, that the constant examination, interrogation, and the disruption of bias and discrimination wherever we find it in our systems, but I think even more importantly within ourselves as, as gatekeepers and decision makers in these, you know, government, nonprofit, and all the, the systems and sectors involved in helping to really eradicate homelessness. 
you spoke to the overrepresentation, right, of of certain communities, and so um, look at within homelessness specifically, uh, African Americans, right, we represent about thirteen percent of the general population, uh, but thirty nine percent of people experiencing homelessness, more than fifty percent of homeless families with children. Um, and so what are the, right, obviously there's these systems need to be addressed, right, in a, in a, on a large scale. If we're thinking specifically, I don't know, around the, the issue of homelessness, is there, in your opinion, a way we can make, we can take an equitable approach in solving the problem? What, what is it that we can specifically do or needs to specifically be addressed when it comes to this issue? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's first a recognition that this is not happenstance, right? It's not some odd coincidence that we see overrepresentation of particularly Black and Indigenous and other minoritized groups experiencing homelessness, right? And so when you hear the statement that, you know, systems are operating as design, we're being clear that, you know, systemic racism is a product of design. It's this culmination of, you know, the conscious and deliberate actions that have been taken by people and institutions for for centuries over for over time, right? And so that really just has been compounding, and we've seen this systematic kind of removal of opportunity for people of color, in particularly because they've been so successfully baked into our systems and structures, and intentionally so, right? And so now they just they operate on autopilot, right? You don't need a racist actor to pull the levers for us to see that and inequities, particularly in the homeless system and other systems, right? And so it successfully just kind of produces and reproduces inequities that become multi-generational. And so because it is something that is by design, I think the good news is um, they can be redesigned, right? But that requires intentionality. That requires us to be deliberately race conscious. And I think most of our systems and structures appear to be race neutral. And I, I just want to be clear that there's no such thing as race neutrality when it comes to our policies and our systems design, right? Our actions, our policies, our decisions are either advancing equity or they're maintaining the status quo, which is inherently oppressive. And so we need to consciously examining how folks, and think about the homeless system specifically, how folks, both privileged and marginalized identities, enter into these systems. What is the inflow? What is the flow of folks into the, the systems? And what is the exit, right? And what is the return to homelessness, right? Well, how that, how that looks different for different groups and populations and really have that equity analysis, that equity lens, so we can consciously redesign, interrupt, and disrupt these structures so we could have more positive racial impacts. So it's really about um, you know, examining and really thoroughly interrogating our systems that have been set up inequitably. So right now they're just by design doing what they're set up to do. Yeah. And it's sobering to say by design, right? Which is something that um, you mentioned racial consciousness, um, that that's something that we think about and consider um, whether, uh, whether we have the privilege of not thinking about it or not. So so tell me, how is being racially conscious, race conscious, inform the work you're doing at the network? Yeah, um, it's understanding that people are situated differently, right? Um, and we have to take that into context. The way we advocate for um, more supportive housing, the the program design, who it serves, we have to be clear that there are, you know, disparities. There are overrepresentation of certain groups. How are we being culturally astute and responsive to those needs so folks can remain successfully housed in supportive housing? You know, again, like 
as it is, the, the intervention itself is a very race-neutral kind of design and concept. It doesn't take into the historical and the contemporary factors that lead to the inequities. We have to build that in in order for it to be really successful, to meet the needs, to understand the historical and contemporary trauma that individuals, uh, minoritized groups, experience. That absolutely affects how we are viewed in this world, how we go to our doctor's appointments, just you know, our experiences in other systems and sectors. That all has to be factored in and understanding. I, I, I think in order to be a, you know, an anti-racist, you have to be a historian in a way. You have to know um, just what has been the legacy and, and that lead up to why folks have differential experiences in the systems that have been set up to serve them um, and they are not doing so equitably. So uh, we talk about a remedy for homelessness uh, being a holistic approach, right? Uh, from your perspective, who are the players, the institutions, agencies, private sector, who comes together to make this holistic approach um, or who needs to come together to make this holistic approach successful? Homelessness is everybody's problem, right? It can and has happened to anybody. And it's you know foolish to think that solving the homelessness crisis just falls on one sector and that the homeless and housing sectors. And I think you know for far too long, there's been this really myopic approach to ending homelessness and really just examining just one system at a time. But again, I, I would say people don't come in pieces, right? People engage multiple different systems, right? You know, folks have, you know, who may have be struggling with a, a substance use disorder also have chronic um, health, physical health conditions, also may have had some time and, and have experience in the criminal legal system, right? And so we really need a whole person approach to end homelessness that is multidisciplinary and multicultural, right? And so when you say which specific, all of them, right? <laughs> all of them, all of them, because again, it is everyone's problem. Uh, but in the interim, you know, I think, you know, real people are living with the consequences of our historical inability to see how all these different systems overlap, drive, and impact one another. And so, again, right, when we think about hospitals, when we think about jails and the carceral system, when we think about domestic violence, all of these things are interrelated and they're compounded for folks who've experienced years and, and sometimes decades uh, of trauma. And again, we have to have this whole person and person-centered approach and not just like, oh, what system do you belong to, right? It has to be a whole system, multidisciplinary approach. City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. So you know that the title of the podcast is Nobody Chooses Homelessness, which is on the opposite, the opposite of the spectrum of people who are like, well, people choose homelessness and this person or maybe this person and a little bit of society, a little bit. It doesn't need to be a holistic approach. Um, on the opposite side of that is nobody chooses homelessness. So how does that phrase resonate with you? Yeah, it, it struck me early on and got my attention. And I, I love the title because I think, as you noted, 
you know, so many folks buy into, you know, these false narratives that people like living on the street or it's because of the mistakes they've made that led them to homelessness. You know, first of all, we all make mistakes, uh, but that is not any reason for why you don't need a roof over your head. So, you know, I think it's, you know, just beyond time that we recognize that housing is an irrefutable basic human right. And to shift that false and harmful narrative that, you know, a safe and stable roof over your head is somehow merit-based or something that needs to be earned. Rather, it's something that everyone deserves just as part of the inherent dignity of, of humanity. So, uh, Pascal, I uh, work on kind of the front lines of what we do here at City Relief as an outreach leader. So I'm connecting with people um, as they come up and, and they're looking for resources and looking for help. Being in that role, I can also uh, see how a lack of racial consciousness uh, can cause further harm. Um, I think actually it was the last week I was talking to a guy who he actually went, he got arrested because he was, I think he said it's uh, katas. It's basically like practicing martial arts. And I know like he always has this kind of like staff broomstick with him, just keeps it with him. Never seen this guy get violent, never seen him go after anybody, nothing. Um, but so he was, said he was practicing his like martial arts moves uh, on his own. And someone comes up, cop. I guess someone said they felt threatened or whatever. He wasn't even near anybody. Cops come. He goes through this whole thing. Right. So depending on who it might have been and what the person looked like, it might have been a completely different you know, result. But he happened to be black. Right. Um, so I can see I, I see t- at times when people are encountered by whether it's outreach, whether sometimes it's authority, whatever it is, um, that not having that kind of racial consciousness can be a huge detriment and create further harm. Um, what are some ways you would suggest that someone like myself as an outreach leader, whether it's with a nonprofit, whether it's with you know DHS, like whatever, if someone's encountering people who are struggling and going through homelessness, what are some ways that we can be mindful of uh racial consciousness and and deal with some implicit bias that sometimes is there. Yeah, I'm glad. Thank you for that. And it's such a great example. And I've, I've heard over the years so many different iterations of that, right? Where the words folks have used to describe folks scary or, you know, just having a manic episode or, you know, just, just the, the bias, right? And I think one thing that's important is to remind folks that we all have an inherent bias. We all do. And again, it's that that constant and conscious interrogation and getting at the root of that, right? There are messages that we see each day consciously and unconsciously that really impact our worldview and how we believe certain people groups are, right? Just by these messages that are constantly thrown at us. So it's no surprise, right, that we, we may have certain biases because we've been groomed. We've been essentially groomed to think certain ways about certain people. And so it really requires us to do this conscious unlearning of what we've been historically taught or perceived to believe and really to um, do the work on our own, right? I think a lot of times, you know, particularly in my previous role, it's folks like, well, what is the book that, you know, I need to read or what are the trainings? You know, we're not going to, there's no toolkit to liberation. There's no, we're not going to train our way out of, you know, structural racism, it is really the work that we do on our own time to understand. Again, as I mentioned, history is the best teacher. um, And that's why I think we're seeing the constant attacks on things like um, CRT, because it's powerful to know just how we got here, why folks 
have been conditioned to think that the way that they do um, and to each day, you know, do a practice of kind of self-reflection and really getting at why we perceive certain things and that impact our actions, right? Um, you know, the example, you know, that you gave was just really a good one, right? Uh, someone who isn't violent, but might be perceived violent because they're Black, because they're male. And where does that stem from? The images, historically, what we've been taught to believe about certain individuals, it takes a lot to push back against that and to do that conscious unlearning. But that is really, you know, the first and the most important step for us to really start thinking the way that we do things, right, to our, our daily practice. That's so important. I love how you said that. You know, I said earlier, those of us who have the privilege of not thinking about this, I as a white woman can put myself in spaces where it is not something that is in front of me. And, you know, there's books and all of those things. But um, for me, the discipline of saying, what are my unconscious biases? What are my unconscious biases? Noticing what they are um, and knowing that for the rest of my life, I will continue to find and continue to dig. Um, it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to say, gosh, is that about, well, l- like, let's think through that. Have conversations with trusted friends who can say, yep, Wendy, Absolutely. that, I can see that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciate all of that. Um, and and really, it's one thing everyone can do and should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have our listeners who are, uh, you know, can be thinking about that, but also thinking about homelessness. We're talking about a holistic approach of everyone, mm-hmm. and it's huge, but we believe that everyone can do something, right? So in your, um, from your perspective, what's something an everyday person can do to impact ending homelessness? Um, I, you know, I think it, it brings me back, you know, just to, you know, the top of the hour and just, you know, I'd say to start, you know, I encourage us all, again, to examine our own worldviews, our own biases and really interrogate why we are so quick to judge, blame, and other those who experience homelessness yet hold harmless the, the, the social and safety nets and systems who really failed time and time again to serve folks ad- adequately, right? And so, you know, I, I would encourage folks to, you know, just contribute their, their time, their voice, and their money to help end homelessness. You know, at the end of the day, housing really is the only solution to end homelessness. Um, We need, you know, volunteers, we need outreach folks, we need advocates, and we need the funds at scale to really, you know, make a dent or really to to meet and match the need that we see uh, day to day. Wow, it's been amazing talking to you. I know this is just so great. And I I love, again, that that the title of your podcast, um, you know, homelessness is something that happens when all else things have failed, um, you know, people, society, and, and systems. And so, continue to do the great work and, and really just spreading that message. And, and, you know, to all your listeners, you know, be encouraged. There is a solution. It's about bringing it at scale and really having the, the guts to do it. <laughs> you know, our, our, our budgets are our moral documents, right? And so what we value are seen in that. And so what we invest in is what we really value. That's a beautiful way to end the episode. So thank you so much for that and for My being pleasure. with us today. Likewise. Thank you so much. Hey you, yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, 
easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.